In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. Clyde Barrow is a big fan of the new Ford V8 automobiles, and he, in fact, he wrote a fan letter to Henry Ford saying, uh, while I have a breath left in me, I want you to know that if I ever have a choice of stealing a car, I always steal a Ford V8. That's Byron Johnson, director of the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, describing the vehicle of choice for Bonnie and Clyde's getaways. The gang rode roughshod over the central United States during the Depression in the 1930s until Texas Ranger Frank Hamer came out of retirement and ended their deadly robbery spree in an ambush. It's one of the many cases that contributes to the worldwide reputation of the Texas Rangers. This is an edition of True Crime Reporter, Texas Ranger Files. On March 1st of 2022, Texas kicked off plans to commemorate the Texas Ranger Bicentennial in 2023. In order to get a concise and accurate account of its history, we went to the official Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum. The museum attracts 100,000 people a year from around the globe to see its exhibit artifacts, artwork, and archives. Here's my interview with its director, Byron Johnson. The Texas Rangers are nearly 200 years old as we speak, and they are the one of the, certainly the most legendary law enforcement organization in the United States, if not the world. What is this mystique that just keeps carrying on about them? I think it's a combination of reality and pop culture. The Rangers are one of the most storied historical uh, agencies. They have been called the second most recognizable thing about Texas after the Alamo. I think the other thing is the pop culture Texas Rangers, who have been a fixture of movies since 1910, radio since 1933, etc., and who today, if you go on Amazon, you'll find over 3,000 books currently in print about the Texas Rangers. And I, I think they are really not only a Texas icon, but an American icon as well worldwide. And what is it about that icon? Is it the rugged Western spirit of it's just one person against the bad, the evil uh, that, that attracts everybody? They're so taken by it. I think one of the things that people really look at in terms of that is the uh, high, sort of the high noon syndrome, the one person standing up against uh, a, an overpowering evil and triumphing because of the spirit of will and this being in the right. And that permeates a lot of Texas Ranger history and a lot of its pop culture. And there is a thinking and inside the Texas Rangers themselves is that you should be able to walk into a room 
without your badge, without your cowboy hat, without your boots, but the way you carry yourself, they know you're a Texas Ranger. And they do. One of the things that is remarkable about the service is that they have a dedication to what it means to be a Texas Ranger and to remember that they are role models for both children and adults worldwide. And so you see them uh, take on the persona and and in reality become some of the most efficient, uh, effective and professional law enforcement personnel than you'll that you'll ever run into, and this is something uh, the that opinion is shared by a lot of police agencies at the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum. We see representatives from everything from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the City of London Police, uh, South American Police Departments, and everything making pilgrimages here because of their respect and interest in the organization. And here is, of course, the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum in Waco, Texas. What's the mission here and what does your collection entail? Well, we do two or three things. Uh, One is to try to collect and preserve the history uh, through research in our research center, which is our library and archives, collecting the documents and other materials so they aren't destroyed, so they're passed on from one generation to the next. Another one is to collect and preserve the artifacts, material, and artwork. And we have collections that go all the way back into the 1820s, and we're still collecting things that the rangers are using today. The idea is that these materials go into the museum, the lifeboat, if you will, to be passed to future generations. The rangers have been around for 200 years. They probably will be around for 200 more in one fashion or another. Um, Another thing we want to do is to look at the impact the rangers have had in American popular culture. All the movies, the the television programs, the Lone Ranger, the Walker, Texas Ranger, and the rest of that, because in many ways, that is the primary contact that people have with the Texas Rangers. Well, and they today, they work in rural areas, and most of Texas's population is urban, so there's not a lot, a lot of chance of seeing them unless you... <laughs> You know, and there's not the coverage in rural newspapers anymore to hear about their work. But give us a sense of what that work is. They spend most of their time assisting other law enforcement agencies with major crimes. Um, They investigate homicides. They have investigated things like child pornography rings. They they deal with computer crimes, um, all sorts of things like that. Since about 2010, they have also been assigned by the governor to to, um, coordinate and uh, observe activities on the border for the state. And they run what are called joint operations intelligence centers with other agencies that are on the border to try to coordinate activities and whatnot down there. They also have the discretion to investigate cases on their own. If they get approached by by someone with something that appears to be the kind of criminal investigations that they do, they can can make a decision to uh, handle it. The governor can also assign them and has 
to go after specific uh, incidences that they want investigated or resolved. So it's they—they they are essentially to to summarize it in many ways. They are essentially the state's FBI. Um, it is very hard to get into the Texas Rangers. Most of the we we laugh when we see a story that says a rookie Texas Ranger solves a major case because. In almost all incidences, that rookie Texas Ranger is experienced enough to the point where they could have become the police chief of a major, you know, a major Texas city. We had a group of German police officers here one day and we were talking about it and we said, yes, in the panhandle, they're still chasing after stolen livestock or the theft uh, in, uh, you know, in the Permian Basin of stolen oil field equipment, things like that. In Houston, they may be going after computer crime and Internet uh, issues and theft and the rest of that. So it's it's very it's it's a wide spectrum of duties that you don't see with many agencies until you get into something like Interpol or uh, in Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which has a very uh, extensive duty responsibility. Well, let's go back to the beginning and maybe start in the museum's archive of what you have here that marks the beginning? Well, the Rangers began almost 200 years ago, next in 2023, 200 years ago. Um, and their story really begins with the independence of Mexico from Spain in 1821. When Mexico gained its independence, it also had huge northern possessions in Texas, uh, New Mexico, and Arizona. Um, the Mexican government being brand new could not protect hardly any of that. So they gave the colonists, um, that came in to settle those areas, many of which were from what was then the United States or Europe or other areas, permission to form militia groups, sort of like Minutemen companies you would associate with the, uh, American revolution in the 1700s. Um, those units uh, formed when they were needed in the event of Indian raids or things like that, and basically were the only protection for the farms and ranches and uh, small towns that existed at the time. And that really was the birth of the Texas Rangers. Today, there is a tradition that they're still very proud of, of neighbors protecting neighbors in Texas. And that's where that began with. Uh, with them mustering at times when they were needed and then going back to their farms and ranches and towns when it was over with. The original ranging companies were, uh, Stephen F. Austin received permission to form them by a man named Jose Tres Palacios, who was the Mexican governor of Texas. And he was given permission to form these militia companies. The first ones were formed down on the coast and took to field, not really knowing what they were doing. They were led by a by a fifer and a drummer, which must have been, uh, been humorous to some of the Indians, um, and took to the field. Austin very quickly realized this wasn't going to work. And I don't think he, reserved, he gets all the credit he deserved because 
He decided to combine what he was familiar with on the frontier, the tracking skills and uh, survival ability of the Native Americans that were out there, the horseback techniques of the Spanish uh, vaqueros in terms of the kind of equipment they use, the saddles and everything else, and some of the technological expertise and whatnot that the, uh, for, for lack of a more inclusive term, the Anglos brought in with them. And so like the American cowboy, the Texas Ranger began as a combination of Hispanic, American Indian, and Anglo-American cultural traditions, which, has, which melded into something unique and something that in the tradition still continues today. So they were good at adapting? Very good at adapting. If they had been, it's unlikely they would be around today. We're frequently asked, you know, are, are why are the rangers still here after 200 years? And we say we've told them because and over their lifetime, they've gone through five different major changes as Texas has changed. And they have been useful in every single one of them. They still continue to be useful and well-respected today. The Rangers are one of the only departments of the state of Texas that cannot be sunset. They can't go out of existence uh, by an act of the state legislature. They they are permanent uh, in terms of a fixture of Texas. Thus, they will be here another 200, 200 years. years. Right. Yes. Uh, let's, let's pick up with the evolution of, and, and you mentioned there, originally, they're dealing with uh, Indian. Can, which tribe, which group of Native Americans? Because there are Native Americans that eventually join a oh, yes. frontier yes. A and group it, of rangers. And it doesn't conform to a lot of the stereotypes. The uh, quote-unquote hostile Indians, some of which were basically trying to protect their lands and whatnot, that they, most of the conflict occurred with were the Karankawas, Tonkawas, and the Comanche, who were re- relative latecomers to Texas. They showed up in Texas in the early 1700s. And those are the ones that they spent most of their time trying to prevent raiding farms and ranches in the, in the state. During that militia period, which stretched from 1823 to 1874, you also have the Texas Revolution. And the Texas Rangers were organized to protect settlers during what Texans know as the runaway scrape when the uh, Texas settlers were fleeing Santa Ana's army eastward, they fought a rear guard action to, uh, to do that. After the uh, successful creation of the Republic of Texas, the Texas Rangers were almost the only uh, military protection that the new country had. Uh, the standing army was stood down, and the rangers responded to situations such as some Mexican incursions or attempts to take Texas back again. Once you get into that, you get into the Civil War, and uh, most of the fit men were taken by the Confederacy, impressed into service, and sent off to fight the Civil War. What you had was a small group of Texas Rangers who were fighting an action to prevent the Comanche, especially from taking advantage of that. Uh, The Comanche managed to push the line of settlement over 200 miles back 
uh, from where it had been before the Civil War. And the only thing protecting uh, the people in Texas at that time were the Texas Rangers, who in many cases were young boys or were uh, elderly uh, men. Let's go back a minute, history of the revolution. Did we have Texas Rangers at the Alamo? Yes, we did. There was a ranging company from Gonzales, Texas, uh, that uh, when they got the call from the Alamo for reinforcements, were the only ones to basically come into the Alamo. And they had uh, rangers as young as teenagers that came into the Alamo, fought and died in the Alamo. So, yes, there were Texas rangers at the Alamo, an entire company of them. And then I've seen a document here, which I was stunned by, that goes back to the capture of Santa Ana and a commissioning done. Would you describe that document and what the significance of that is for us? Sure. Um, After the Battle of San Jacinto, Santa Ana had put on the clothing of a infantry private and was trying to escape back through the lines. Um, they sent out a squad of uh, soldiers to try to find him and did so successfully. One of the soldiers was a man named Joel Robeson, who was on the squad that actually captured Santa Ana, brought him to Sam Houston. Santa Ana is the... Right, the Mexican Mexican general. general And And, and describe the quality of the Mexican uh, army at that time. Mexican army was by many people considered to be the best trained and equipped army in the world. They had European mercenaries who trained them. They had the best firearms and equipment. They frequently used Brown Best rifles, which were the British rifles that were regarded as being being a standard at that point in time. And so how does this Texas rival win against that? (laughs) Well... They basically stretched the the retreat of the Texas Army out all the way from the San Antonio area to East Texas. So they stretched the Mexican Army out. They stretched their supply lines out and everything else. And then by pure serendipity, the Santa Ana split his forces into two groups, which was not a particularly wise thing to do. And he went with a smaller group to the area around San Jacinto, where he was discovered by the Texans. And the Texans launched an early morning attack that just devastated the Mexican army. They captured um, the uh, bulk or captured, killed the bulk of that branch of the Mexican army. Joel Robeson, who was on the uh, squad, found Santa Ana dressed as a private, hauled him to Sam Houston, and he was forced to capitulate and basically sign over the right for Texas to become its own independent nation. In uh, thanks uh, for his service during that, Robeson was presented with a Texas Ranger Commission. We have it in the museum collections, naming his a, him as a lieutenant in the Texas Rangers, and it's one of the earliest documents. They didn't have any formal documents for Texas Rangers, so they took a Texian Army enlistment form, crossed out Texian Army, and wrote in Texas Rangers. And tell us how that came to the museum, because it's quite significant. Family came in out of the blue one day, and like we have with many of the artifacts and things that we have here, it says, we said, we have a document that uh, has been in our family for over 150 years. 
and we're concerned that it's going to be preserved. Uh, there was this rumor that one of our family members was a Texas Ranger, which is the doc what the document seems to say. We put our research people on it, and we have some some really talented um, individuals working in our Armstrong Texas Ranger Research Center. And they told the family, you probably better sit down when we tell you this. Uh, not only was your ancestor a Texas Ranger, he was on the squad that captured Santa Ana, uh, General Santa Ana, after the Battle of San Jacinto. And what this document indicates is that he was given a Ranger commission. Their comment to us was, this needs to be preserved for future generations. Uh, we want to donate it to the museum since what you have becomes public property and is permanently preserved. And so we'd like to like you to have it. And we were just stunned and, of course, very grateful. It was a gift not to us, but it was a gift to all of Texas and to future generations. So before I took you back in history, we were talking about the young rangers that were uh, fighting against Comanches during uh, the Civil War. Pick up the story from there. All right. Um, that during the Civil War, the Comanches uh, became aware of the war between the Confederacy and the Union, and they thought, okay, this is a good way to take back our lands and everything else. So they started to form uh, raiding parties and started to hit the settlements and everything else. Well, every time that the Texas Rangers had a good uh, component of people in it, the Confederacy stepped in and said, hi, we're impressing all of these people into the Confederate Army and shipped them off you know, to fight in the war. Uh, what they got back were people that had been wounded or were no longer in peak physical condition. They had old, older men left, and they had young boys, some as uh, young as 15 years old, that were uh, hastily called in ranger service, and they wound up fighting the Comanche on the western frontier. And they actually prevented them from completely overrunning Texas during the Civil War. And you said impressed, as I recall, Sam Houston, great Texan, had opposed succession. Yes. And, uh, you know, there were counties in Texas that voted against it. Mm -hmm. So just so our listeners know, there weren't lots of men anxious to go. No, not in many cases. There were actually Union Army units raised from the Hill Country in Texas which uh, had a lot of uh, people of German ancestry and a lot of high, heavily pro-Union people. And uh, some of those uh, left home, went to the Union territories, and enlisted in Texas Union units. So it was, uh, it was pretty varied history. Well, it, it, never, it always struck me uh, that uh, the late President Lyndon B. Johnson was from those German communities mm -hmm. that voted against succeeding. And then later he is the president that right. brings about with sheer force of personality, the civil rights. Act. You find that everything has a precedent in history that leads to where we are today. Um, with the Texas Rangers, it's the fact that they're regarded as one of the most elite accomplished professional law enforcement agencies in the world, but they didn't get there overnight. 
There were enormous achievements. There were also periods of uh, darker, darker periods of history, uh, many of which were caused by political figures, past governors using them in ways that were not appropriate uh, and assigning them to do things that were not appropriate. Um, and they learned lessons from every one of those things, both the achievements and the darker periods that shaped them into what they are today. If you look at organizations that have existed for 200 years or longer, like the U.S. Army, they went through the same evolutionary process. We have arguably the best military uh, force in the world today, the most professional and the best trained, of which the U.S. Army is a big, big component of that. And they're a product of their history as well from like the Texas Rangers, the militia companies during the uh, Revolutionary War, all the way down to uh, what they are today. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. We're talking with Byron Johnson, the director of the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum in Waco, Texas, about the history of the Rangers. I do want to remind our listeners, if uh, uh, you really want to dig deeper in the subjects we do, Sign up for our newsletter at truecrimereporter.com. It's there on the home page. Now, Byron, we, when we left off, it was, we're post-Civil War, the Rangers. Well, the Ranger militia era really ends in the 1870s. Texas was readmitted to the Union in 1870 as a state again. And the problem is there's no law enforcement anywhere in the state. At the same time, post-Civil War, you have the railroads coming into Texas and extending through every aspect of it, primarily to get cattle to market. There's something like 3 million cattle on the U.S., or pardon me, on the Texas-Mexican border, and they want to ship these off to eastern markets and everything else. To service these railroads and to service this cattle industry, you have the development of new towns like Fort Worth and Abilene and others like this that spring up overnight. When the towns spring up, one of the things you get coming into them is the criminal element. Uh, so the new mayors send the governors uh, please saying, please send us law enforcement up here, which is at that time the reformed Texas Rangers. The government of the state of Texas decides to create two different units of Texas Rangers. One is called the Frontier Battalion. They spend most of their time uh, bringing law to communities, hunting murderers, bank robbers, other people like that. The other one is called a Special Force, and it's set down on the border, especially to an area called the Nueces Strip along the Nueces River. 
to try to quell the violence going on from back and forth skirmishes over all these cattle that are down there just roaming free that both uh, the Mexican uh, populace wants and also the Texas populace wants. It's been called a literal state of war, and in many ways it was a predecessor to the issues that continued to plague the Texas border for over a century afterwards. Um, the Frontier Battalion becomes legendary. They are the root of the pop culture ranger, the lone ranger and the rest of that going into towns and everything else. Uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of people, though it isn't, wasn't always exactly that way. The rangers at that time weren't lone rangers. They were divided into companies, company A, B, C, D, et cetera. And generally, when you had something going on, a company was dispatched to deal with the issue, like uh, like a group of bank robbers or something like that. On the Nueces Strip, you have uh, also have ranger companies that are sent down there to try to deal with the violence and everything else. So much of this, um, much of this is what the Wild West ethos of the rangers is built out of. It still, in some ways, exists today because current rangers are assigned to companies A through F, and those harken back to the companies that were created during the Frontier Battalion days. Their dress is prescribed in their regulations as Western dress with uh, businessman or rancher-style cowboy hats with boots, um, with certain types of Western cut trousers and the rest of that. And that tradition continues today. And gun belts. And gun belts. The badges they use, the earliest ones came were uh, seen in the 1880s. They were made out of Mexican coins, the silver in which was a standard of purity. And today, the Texas Ranger badges are still made out of Mexican coins that are made into the modern design of a Texas Ranger badge. So you have all this 1874 to 1901 period um, frontier law enforcement ethos that has come forward as a tradition into the 21st century. And then so post-1901 uh, and, and headed to World War One. How does that role change? What are they <laughs> well, there were arguments about, about in the turn of the century, 1900, 1901, about whether the Texas Rangers were still needed. There were no more Indian problems. Uh, the railroads and the towns were stable and everything else. What they didn't plan on was the turmoil of the 20, 20th century that they were getting into. You, of course, had the Texas oil booms and the Panhandle and East Texas. You had the national experiment of prohibition with alcohol being brought into Texas illegally over the border from Mexico and the stills that dotted the piney woods of East Texas during that period of time. You had an attempt during World War I to send the Rangers after draft dodgers and whatnot. And then in the Depression, you had the rise of what they called motorized bandits, bandits using automobiles and whatnot, like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, that uh, had, to be, had to be hunted down. So the 20th century, if anything, turned out to be just as tumultuous as the 19th century turned out to be. Does Bonnie and Clyde also modern day really contribute to that pop culture image you had 
uh, Frank Hamer mm-hmm. uh, in pursuit. But what people don't realize, he wasn't a Texas Ranger at the time. He had was had left the Rangers, but he was recruited by the Texas prison system because they had broken somebody out of prison. Correct. Hamer had left the Rangers because there was a period in which uh, two uh, Texas governors, um, the Fergusons, a husband and wife who became successive governors, had Ma and Pa Ferguson, yes. Uh, They had uh, utilized the Rangers in ways they shouldn't have been, been. They had let people into the Rangers that should not have been in the Rangers. Um, and they were notorious for their corruption. Absolutely. And taking bribes. And, yes. You could buy a ranger commission at that point in time from the governor's office. And uh, Hamer and a lot of the other rangers just said, I'm not having any of this, and, and resigned and went on to other law enforcement activities. Well, Hamer was brought out of retirement, given a state, as you said, a state prison commission, and hunted Bonnie and Clyde for about 100 days, finding out where they went, what they did, everything else. And um, he uh, brought their career to an end by getting Dallas policemen, Louisiana policemen, former Texas Rangers and everything else to stage the famous ambush. Uh, the ambush was made possible because he went to the family of Bonnie and Clyde and said, we have to get them off the streets. And if you don't help us do this, we're coming after you too for aiding and abetting them. Interestingly enough, a version of that occurred in the 1990s with the surrender of uh, Angel Rafael Resendez, the railroad serial killer because the way they finally brought him in was talking to his family in Mexico and saying, you folks realize, as do we, we have to get this man off the streets. And just to elaborate, this was a man riding the rails and boxcars through Texas up into the central part of the country, uh, murdering people, mainly women, mm-hmm. and, uh, that live near rural tracks. And there was a panic that swept through the state. Especially among people who live near rural tracks. That's correct. It was a little different with Bonnie and Clyde because they achieved, in some ways, kind of a folk hero status, which was undeserved. During their career, they killed at least 13 police officers and innocent bystanders. Um, but they had the same kind of mobility that Resendez had on the train. Clyde Barrow was a big fan of the new Ford V8 automobiles, and he, in fact, he wrote a fan letter to Henry Ford saying, uh, while I have a breath left in me, I want you to know that if I ever have a choice of stealing a car, I always steal a Ford V8. That's something you don't see very often in Ford ads these days. You know, my mother uh, said as a little girl, she uh, one of her strong memories was going to the state Fair of Texas, which was in Dallas. This was a huge event back in those days because Texas was still an agricultural cattle. And so there were all kinds of displays and uh, put on and competitions for chickens and horses and goats and pigs, you name it. And it, everybody went. But she said that one of the big events would that it would have Bonnie and Clyde's bullet riddled vehicle uh, on display. And there will be thousands of people. Yes, and that got so popular that, believe it or not, you had carnival uh, barkers that were going around getting that same model and style of uh, Ford V8 automobile, filling it full of uh, 
of uh, bullets and then hauling it around and claiming it was Bonnie and Clyde's death car. They weren't. Hamer actually wandered into a carnival one time, saw one of those, and very strongly urged the carnival barker to discontinue his exhibit of the fake Bonnie and Clyde car. You know, I was reading an oral history by an African blues uh, player that I actually knew uh, many years ago, and he told the story of how uh, Frank Hamer came into uh, a community in Texas that was being just uh, African-Americans were being dragged through the street and hung. And he came in and single-handedly took on the Ku Klux Klan. There were two rangers that actually did that. And um, one, another one was a man named Red Burton who stood down a crowd of about 600 Ku Klux Klansmen in this area of Texas, central Texas, um, and it was, you know, it's a, it's an example of the fact that a lot of these people were very strongly motivated again by what is right and what should be done and how, and people it should be protected. And that's something that permeates the service even to this day. And the, and a side story in this uh, oral history is that, um, Hamer had been, shot in the stomach earlier in a gunfight and left to die. And it was an African-American man that came out at his own risk and rescued him. Hamer had a, Hamer had a rough and tumble life. The estimate is that he was shot more than 16 times during the course of his career. Obviously survived all of them, but uh, he, was, he was not a small man either. He was well over six feet tall for that, for that time period. And uh, about as about as tough as nails. Well, let's pick up the trail from Frank Hamer now. All righty. If we go up to 1935, the Texas Rangers have may have um, a investigative role. Um, in 1935, the corruption that had occurred, as we talked about with the Fergusons and others, led to the creation of what we know today, the Texas Department of Public Safety. And the first three units of that were the Motorcycle Highway Patrol, the crime, the uh, crime, Criminal Intelligence Division, which was basically the state crime lab, and then the Texas Rangers. Um, it, today, there are over, I think, 30 different units that, were in that are in Texas Department of Public Safety. They converted from sort of a frontierish type organization into extremely professional law enforcement personnel, um, except for the dress and the clothing. A lot of their operational styles were the same as government G-men. Um, and they continued uh, working with local police agencies and conducting major investigations up until about 2010. After 2010, they continue that, but they add a whole group of things uh, to their responsibilities, which is amazing for a group that only has about 170 uh, sworn individuals in it. Some of these are an enormously successful cold case investigation unit that has solved since its creation a few years ago over 130 cold cases and closed them. Um, they have the uh, border uh, unit that has been assigned to uh, monitor what's going on in the Texas-Mexican border. 
They have a unit that is dealing with DNA analysis and collecting DNA samples that have been ordered by the courts to try to solve sexual crimes that have occurred. Um, they have a unit that is involved in the protection of children. They go literally worldwide from New Zealand to Great Britain, training police officers in routine traffic stops where there are children in the car to recognize the situation where a child may be endangered through kidnapping or parent, you know, or parental abduction in the case of disputed custody or things like that. And they have recovered um, a large number of children that were in a potentially threatening situations. So that continues today. They are, interestingly, as diverse as they were when they were first formed and had American Indians, African Americans, and Anglos in it in the 1830s and 40s. Today, there are Texas Rangers that have served in all ranks from field ranger to chief that have been African American, Hispanic. Um, there are female Texas Rangers heading up special operations group functions and other things like that. So it's a lot different from the stereotype people have of, you know, six foot two white guys in cowboy hats. Yeah. It is it is a very modern police agency that looks like the people of Texas look today. Well, I want to thank you for that history. Um uh, for a moment, though, tell us if uh, if you're coming to Texas, what should you plan on coming to this museum, and why should you see it? And should you just make a special trip to see it? Because I know you have visitors from Germany and Europe and all around the world. Well, if you want to get a sense of Texas and its history, there are two places that we really recommend that you go. One is our place, Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, located in Waco on Interstate 35. And the other one is the Alamo in San Antonio. Both of them capture a history that has spanned three centuries, the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st. And will get really give you an idea of what the characteristics and uh, ethos behind Texas really is. Thank you for sharing the spirit of Texas and the Texas Rangers with us. My pleasure. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of truecrimereporter.com. 
It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.